Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets, Inc. Kane Brothers bankers work in some of the most interesting segments of the healthcare industries. They work with organizations and business models that are helping to change American healthcare for the better. I'm your host, Dave Johnson. I'm also CEO of Foresight Health. I'm a recovering investment banker myself who discovered late in my career that I was always meant to be a journalist. I co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. Each piece becomes an exercise in examining a fascinating segment of the dynamic healthcare landscape. The focus of our articles and this podcast is on how to make America's fragmented, inefficient, and often broken healthcare system more integrated, consolidated, efficient, and customer-focused so that it delivers greater value and innovation to the American people. For this edition of House Calls, we're going to broadcast a conversation from the Kane Brothers Annual Conference from October 2019. It was a great event over two days at the Lot New York Palace, attended by over 600 executives, investors, and professionals. On the second day, Kane Brothers CEO Rob Freeman moderated an outstanding discussion between Key Corp Chairman and CEO Beth Mooney and the Cleveland Clinic's President and CEO Tom Mahalovich. As you'll hear, Rob took this conversation in a fascinating direction right off the bat, focusing on how the two CEOs see healthcare today from an employer's perspective. My own personal biggest frustration with U.S. healthcare is that self insured employers like these two companies haven't demanded more value from the healthcare system for the premium prices they pay for coverage. Beth and Tom grappled with this and other issues in a very far-ranging and interesting discussion. Let's listen. So we're going to kick off the, uh, the meeting today uh, with a fireside chat that I have the pleasure to moderate uh, with Beth Mooney, the CEO of KeyBank, and with Dr. Tom Mahalovich, the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic. Let me first introduce you to Beth Mooney. Beth has been KeyBank's chairman and CEO since 2011. And since earlier this year, she's also had the role of the chairman of the board of the Cleveland Clinic. Beth is also a member of the board of directors of AT&T Corporation and Ford Motor Company. Indeed, she's one of the few corporate leaders in America who serves on the board of three Fortune 500 companies. Her role as CEO of Key with over 18,000 employees and a board member of two other companies with several hundred thousand employees, while also helping lead one of the most uh, prominent health systems in the world, provides her with a unique vantage point on the U.S. healthcare industry. Tom Mahalovich is a physician. He's been the president and the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic since 2018. As you know, the Cleveland Clinic is a $10 billion healthcare system that includes a main campus in Cleveland, of course, but also has 11 regional hospitals in Ohio and facilities and physicians in Florida, Nevada, Abu Dhabi, Toronto, and soon to be in London. The Cleveland Clinic, of course, is consistently ranked as one of the best hospitals in the world uh, and in the United States. In 2018 and 2019, U.S. News & World Report ranked Cleveland Clinic as the number two hospital in the United States in its best hospitals honor roll. Cleveland Clinic's cardiology program has ranked number one in the nation every year since 1995. They're also a major employer. The clinic employs 66,000 people, including 4,200 physicians and 16,000 nurses. So please join me in welcoming Beth Mooney and Tom Mahalovich to the stage. Let's dig in and talk about the healthcare industry. There was a new study that uh, many of us read by the Kaiser Family Foundation that found that for the first time, the, an the annual total cost of employer-provided healthcare coverage is now over $20,000 a year. Employers are bearing about 70% of that cost, uh, employees about 30%. And many in the U.S. and many in the industry feel that the average American is actually more concerned about paying for health care than they are about actually contracting a, an illness. How did we get here? And what are we going to do or what can we do to relieve this enormous cost burden on the working Americans? Well, that's obviously a, a broad question uh, because it, it touches, touches so many facets of health care, the way we live and so on. Let me just try to break it down in uh, probably just a few pieces. 
Uh, one, certainly from the provider standpoint, I think our responsibility uh, as providers is to change the way that we approach healthcare instead of being there only when patients are ill to become much more proactively involved in, in, uh, in keeping our patients healthy and to be involved in their, in their wellness and their health and uh, uh, provide a type of a coordinated care that is going to keep them healthy. On a public healthcare perspective, I think one of the big, big issues in, in the United States, which is oftentimes under-recognized, is that the reason why we are paying so much for, for healthcare uh, and the, the discrepancy between the health of a nation and the amount of money that we're allocating for healthcare is largely uh, independent from the quality of the hospitals that we have in the United States. But it's really to much greater extent determined by social determinants of health. The health of our nation and people in the United States is really to substantially greater extent determined by their uh, quality of their housing, quality of the social services, accessibility to the right food. And then I would say, lastly, I think there, there are several determinants of, uh, of health in the United States, in particular recently, that have skewed uh, the life expectancy in all public health care parameters, and uh, uh, that's something that we have to deal with more effectively, and that's opioid epidemic, first and foremost. We're losing 70,000 lives a year, young lives in the United States, uh, something that was unthinkable not such a long time ago. That epidemic alone uh, has definitely skewed the public health care outcomes across the board. Beth, from your perspective as, as the CEO of Key, but also with your insights from uh, your board uh, roles at AT&T and uh, more recently at Ford, what can the corporate world do about rising insurance premiums, about drug price inflation, about uh, hospital and physician price inflation, uh, and ultimately this, this cost issue in the healthcare system? Thanks, Rob. And I will break it down between kind of what our role is or capacity is to influence the cost structure, but more importantly then as employers, how we design our benefits to optimize health outcomes for our employees, because I think that's increasingly um, not just a cost-driven analysis, it's about the full wellness of, of your employees that you want to make sure you have a vital and healthy workforce. So on the cost side, it's very much how you structure your plans, who you partner with, you know, how you create reimbursements. So there are all these things we do to try and limit the relative, and I'm going to say increases on an annual basis that the cost of delivery to your employees costs you. And I say that because there are many places where the cost curves are actually bending. And healthcare is not one of them. It's a, it's a function of how much it's going to go up in any given year. We have a whole group of people who spend time trying to figure out what is both the optimal structure, cost, where we have leverage, and how to package that which we are going to ensure and make available to our employees. In every engagement survey we take of our employees, probably one of the biggest concerns, to your point, is benefits around health care. That is a number one employee benefit that we offer. And they are concerned about the cost, access, um, and then just clearly understanding because there is not as much transparency in, as there are in many parts of the, uh, what we do as consumers. So we have done a lot of things to really create wellness benefits that are both uh, good for our employees, but they are hurdles towards things that if you do certain things, you have certain kinds of tests, you um, submit to a program where you show you're walking, one person at the bank put the the monitor on their dog, but we, <laughs> we didn't bust them for that. Uh, but things that really show that you are endeavoring to do a healthy lifestyle and make sure you're doing the things to show your core health. We will give you discounts on your health plans. We give you more reimbursements. So we do a variety of things that really encourage people to engage in their health and wellness. And those are very well received. And then structurally, we've gone to the high deductible plans. We made that pivot a couple years ago. But then we supplement those with HSA accounts that we fund on January 1st every year to try and help offset the costs to our employees. And then we did what I call the Robin Hood method. We have three tiers of healthcare costs. 
and for um, the majority of our employees who make under $100,000 a year, we haven't raised their premiums in over five years. But that means you're absorbing it both elsewhere in our employee population and making other trade-offs in your benefit programs. So this notion of the escalating cost of health care, I think employers, it's one of the things we spend in our benefits and our salary packages, perhaps the most time in any year is trying to get this right. It's like I said, number one feedback you'll get from your employees is access to health care and making sure they understand it. It's affordable, and then we're all in this together from a benefit point of view, not just to lower the cost, but to increase the outcomes of wellness for our employees. Tom, let me ask you the same question. You, as I said in my opening comments, you're in this unique position of being in the business of providing health care, uh, but you also are a substantial employer. You're uh, one of the largest employers in the state of Ohio. How do you think about that? You're providing care, but you're also paying for care. How do you demand, as, a, as an employer, better value and better outcomes uh, from the huge healthcare investments that you're making? Yeah, so, so this year we officially became the largest employer in the state of Ohio, uh, with 50, a little over 52,000 of our caregivers uh, located in our home state. We have our employee health plan that covers 66,000 employees and their families. And uh, by being in this unique position, as, as you described, uh, being both the employer and a provider of healthcare, we have been able to design uh, the, the healthcare product that has actually bent the curve, where we are actually uh, spending uh, less on our healthcare for our employees uh, and is seeing much better healthcare outcomes than what we've traditionally had. There are two reasons for it. Uh, probably one of the most important reasons is the population that we cover, we cover in continuity. A lot of people uh, who are covered with a variety of different health plans from the payer perspective, you know, the population changes, but about 20 to 30% of the population changes every single year. So there is a lack of a continuity of coverage. So we have that because people are employed by us. And secondly, we are uh, obviously highly vested into becoming the best place to work in healthcare, meaning we want to keep our, our own employees, our caregivers healthy. So we have designed a lot of innovative healthcare programs and put a lot of effort into engaging our own employees in their own health. You know, 80% of everything that we spend in healthcare uh, is spent for the treatment of chronic diseases or consequences of chronic diseases diabetes, hypertension, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And uh, uh, with these innovative programs, with the longitudinal uh, tracking of our outcomes, with the empowerment of our own caregivers to take better ownership in their healthcare, we have been able to bend that curve. And now we're looking into the ways of how we can extrapolate those learnings on all the patients that we, we're caring for. And we are caring for over 2 million people. Healthcare is a local business. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's about care in a given community. I'm sitting with the CEOs of two great Cleveland-based companies. Are there ways that two great companies, one providing, one delivering and paying for care, can innovate and work together to create a new and better model uh, for delivering high-value care that, that won't break the bank? Beth? Well, I would start and say that, um, yes, obviously, uh, but I think healthcare is becoming more and more non-local. I think some piece of both quality, cost, and reach is going to be through care models, and I brought this as a prop. Um, this is going to, between data, technology, access, virtual, is going to help transform uh, both delivery and cost of care. So I think some piece of what is incumbent on businesses as well as healthcare providers is to really help figure out how to crack the code on what I call non-space and place-based delivery, as well as trying to make sure we make the um, physical delivery, because there is a portion that will always be physically delivered, make that as efficient as possible. We in our, our industry of banking have proven that people are willing to do not all, but a lot of their business through uh, a, a mobile world. Um, I think if we can create incentives and alignment for more virtual care and access in different ways, it will, um, and we could promote it through our employee base, it will help accelerate some of these changes in healthcare. 
partnerships that the clinic does, whether in Cleveland or frankly in any of your markets with uh, large employers in the market, does that, does it move the needle? It doesn't. It does not to the extent that we would like to. I think a lot, a lot of our ability to move the needle will be enabled through what Beth just has mentioned, you know, to the advances in healthcare and our ability to connect with the larger employers and broader geographies more effectively through technology. The real problem for pairing a large pairs with the large providers uh, relates to the scale or insufficient scale of providers. You know, if you take a look at uh, top three or top four best renowned names in the healthcare on the provider side, our market share, if you will, is and the size is relatively small. Uh, Cleveland Clinic um, has a market share of half a percent in the United States. We touch at the best one in 200 Americans. So in order for us to directly partner with the large, let's say national employer, take any company, uh, we just simply do not have a footprint or a presence. So we can supplement some of that through technology, but not all of it. If we were to take a look at all major contributors in healthcare ecosystem, pharmaceutical biotech companies is one, payers is another, and then providers is a third, if you were to take a look at their relative role, size, and influence, you will see that the providers have a disproportionately small size and influence on a, on a market. And as long as that is the case, uh, it is going to really, really be difficult to extrapolate the learnings and, quite frankly, to provide the quality of care that the renowned healthcare system stand for to a larger number of Americans. Let's stay on this topic of, of technology. Um, in so many industries, obviously, technology is and will continue to be a disruptor. Some of our panelists yesterday uh, uh, expressed some skepticism about whether uh, and how technology and how quickly it will, in fact, change, uh, change the game, whether it's AI, data technologies, and so forth. Beth, I think it would be really interesting to talk about, uh, from your perspective, how technology, and again, AI, data technologies, and, and, and mobile technology has changed the financial services industry and what comparisons we should draw or or not uh, with the healthcare industry. There is one fundamental difference, which is there is a point in the healthcare delivery continuum where you have to be in a room with a doctor and procedures being done. But so there, that is a core difference. I think one of the things that in financial services there are entire countries on the globe that are cashless. Their entire banking system is in a mobile device, and they have figured out how to make money and the movement of money and goods and, and everything that you should do in terms of a banking relationship can be done through this. So we have seen in our industry, and I don't think it's disruptive, I think it is evolutionary, um, that we have lots of things. Money is becoming ubiquitous friction points of how you do business and, and being bounded by a physical space and place to transact. Um, you can do so much in self-service in a positive way that we are transforming the delivery of financial services through the use of technology. Every cohort, every age demographic still wants access to a bank at some point in time. There is the these moments of truth in people's lives where they want access to somebody to help inform them, make a good decision, and give them confidence for what they need to do. But when you go down the continuum and then about what are data analytics and AI doing for the industry, and I think AI is still emerging. I think it is more talk than it is yet transforming the landscape. But data and analytics um, across industries and in healthcare are transforming the business. What you can know about people, the world of connected devices is going to change things, particularly in healthcare, but we can um, mine people's data, know their preferences, how they conduct things. And when you think of healthcare versus a hospital, uh, we have floors of people who are PhDs, who are highly sophisticated, who are modeling things. It is not, so I think in healthcare, it's gonna be a lot of partnering because to develop these capabilities one-off is, uh, one, I think it will service all well if they are interoperable, um, but it's also very, very sophisticated and takes all, not just the technology, but the people to empower it, where it will actually be a meaningful tool. 
So let's pick up on that word partnering. Tom, earlier this week, uh, the clinic, Cleveland Clinic, announced a partnership with a telehealth company, American Well. Help us understand that initiative and as well as other partnering opportunities you're looking at for access, for care delivery, for uh, administration at the Cleveland Clinic. Where, where are there opportunities uh, like with American Well? Beth and I and, and members of the board and uh, leadership at the Cleveland Clinic, we oftentimes we spend a lot, a lot of time to understand uh, and uh, determine what is going to be the true uh, unit of a success and a legacy that we will, we will leave behind us once we are not in a role that so we currently are. And we've all agreed that a number of the people we touch with the Cleveland Clinic quality of care is ultimately the legacy that we would like to leave behind. We do believe that we have an ethical imperative to extend the type of care that we know how to provide to as many people in need as possible. So that then leads to the answer to your question is the partnership with an American Well gives us a vehicle to scale up a Cleveland Clinic's expertise for in, in the areas of a second opinion to millions of people through a different tool and uh, with a different vehicle, and that's the, that's the uh, telemedicine platform that American Well has. So American Well has developed a platform that can reach 80 million Americans through their contractual agreements. Cleveland Clinic is powering it with our, with our uh, intellectual, professional know-how, and uh, that is going to be a vehicle that, that will allow essentially any American and very many patients throughout the world to access a sec second opinion easily, and uh, will get a quality answer that will determine you know, the future of their healthcare. Let me ask you both um, about uh, sort of the big three technology uh, players that we see uh, making major investments in healthcare, Amazon, Google, and Apple. How do you see, or do you see, them having an impact on the delivery of care and the cost of, of care? And I'll add to that Microsoft as well. Yeah. Uh, and the answer is yes. Both Beth and I share firm conviction that technology is going to have a very profound effect on a health care in a very short time span. I'll just use one, one example is oncology, cancer care. Cancer care five years from now and today is a different entity. And it's a different entity because we're using the technology much more effectively to agglomerate a phenomenal amount of data that no human can do on his or her, her own. And by doing so, all this data, genomic data, proteinomic data, and the list goes on and on, allows us to, to provide a much more tailored therapy for many diseases. They used to be fatal and not fatal any longer. Take a look at the outcomes, let's say, of melanoma, skin cancer. Today versus five, six, seven years ago. Tremendous shift, largely enabled through technology. We had health, uh, the Health Innovation Summit in Cleveland uh, last few days, spoke with Eric Luskowski from Tempus. He's doing exactly that. His company is agglomerating this phenomenal vast amount of data and cancer care and putting it in the service of our patients. And those are phenomenal transformative, transformative changes that we will be seeing. And I will just say that I, I can see the, the future uh, when we're going to have a fewer larger healthcare system, they're going to be differentiated not only by the quality of the talent that they have, that is always going to be differentiated, but also by their ability ability uh, to use the technology to uh, direct and improve the care of our patients. Beth, any, anything to add to that about the four big uh, technology players and how you see them impacting the... Well, a couple things I would say is that um, they are transforming many industries right now. They are truly coming into multiple industries. We use the word disruptive. At the end of the day, they're also transforming in a way that is far more patient-slash-consumer-centric, um, leveraging technology and data in a way that I think the outcomes are far better than they would have been without these, these players. I will leave aside whether or not it is a concentration of market power and all that sort of thing. I think it is a net positive to how we are um, experiencing our world and it will experience healthcare. And then I do think it's interesting um, the way J.P. Morgan, Amazon, and Berkshire Hathaway have come together. I do not yet fully understand how what they've called Haven, which is their um, healthcare 
system that they want to take the fact that they have among them hundreds of thousands of employees and figure out a different way to deliver care in a more cost effective without sacrificing quality. But there's going to be something that comes out of that that's going to be yet again another pivot um, in the care models as well as um, delivery and, and insurance model. Clearly, one of the major differences for those companies is how they touch the, the, the consumer. And in healthcare, as, as we all know, it's a truly unique uh, industry because the buy-sell dynamics uh, that uh, control so many, uh, pretty much every other consumer-facing industry don't exist. The consumer who you serve, Tom, at the Cleveland Clinic uh, doesn't know the price of the service that they are receiving. Um, and of course, they only pay for a portion of it because their employer uh, pays for the balance uh, or their insurer does. So it's been said that many providers as a result of that aren't really able to provide the quality and depth and, and type of service that the consumer is, um, is looking for. How do we address that? The Cleveland Clinic has a remarkable brand. How do you, how do you address that interaction uh, and the need for a better understanding from the consumer? The big challenge in healthcare is that uh, at, the, at the beginning of the process of delivering care, we just simply do not know what that process is going to look like. So it's difficult to price it up front. In most other industries, that's, that's a known entity. You know what, you, what you're buying and what you're heading into. For us, uh, in particular, for us in a kind of a complex care environment, it is, it is really an impossible task to answer. So that's probably one of the big fundamental differences between our industry and other industries when it comes to pricing. I do believe that uh, uh, the declarative in pricing is going to be easier to, um, to overcome for somewhat, so to say, standardized fragments of care that we provide. I think there's a lot that we can do differently, differently and better. But for, for complex, multidisciplinary, team-based care for difficult diseases, it is going to be a really, really difficult hurdle to overcome, no matter which, which technology we use, we just because we simply cannot really answer it in a straight, straightforward way. Beth, I'm going to ask you the same question. Obviously, Key, but also AT&T and Ford uh, are, are companies that touch the, the consumer uh, every day. Um, what can the healthcare industry learn from all three of those, not just financial services, but also from media and telecom uh, and, uh, and from the automotive industry uh, about the consumer uh, in, in healthcare? There is a complexity in healthcare because some piece of it is ultimately need-based, you know, based on something that happens in a person's life that they absolutely need a particular care protocol. But within the bands of wellness and uh, other things, in one of my takeaways is how do you bundle things with intelligence that are going to help create outcomes that are more cost effective if you go in and you do a certain protocol or series of tests together. It could be done more cost effectively and likely create value and health outcomes, a healthier patients. I think across industries, what services or what attributes you bundle together, and by doing so you can make them more cost effective and you will have better outcomes, I think is something that as healthcare providers think through their continuum of delivery that's going to be incredibly important. And then um, in this world of access and convenience, um, I think the transparency one is difficult for consumers and employers to not have a better sense of the cost. And I get that sometimes it's based on you don't know what somebody needs, but then is it you want to walk into a clinic and see the pricing board of if you have this, it costs you this. If you have that, it costs you why. And it's in one of the few industries where you really don't know what the package is going to cost you. Um, but I do think there is a real opportunity for um, some ability for people to understand the costs and the trade-offs of what they are choosing. The biggest point of vulnerability in somebody's life is I'm sick and make me well. Yeah. And, that, and at that point in time, you really do want people making decisions that are best for you. Um, but short of that, there, there are probably choices and ways people could stage things um, through the use of technology and, and, and bundling of products and services. Just, just to add, add to, to what Beth just mentioned, and oftentimes it's, it's interesting to provide a little bit of a context and a scope of a complexity, you know, because oftentimes people will start these type of conversations 
in particular if they're outside of healthcare and say, how in the world can I walk in any type of a service and know exactly what I'm going to pay for, whatever I'm asking, and you guys in healthcare cannot figure it out. Uh, in, just to give you a complexity of the task, just for an outpatient appointments, there are 20,000 different types of outpatient appointments that a person can schedule at the Cleveland Clinic. Essentially, there are 20,000 services in the outpatient space. And you can imagine the menu in a patient's waiting room that's going to have 20,000 items. It's not cheaper by the dozen. And it's not cheaper by the dozen. And by the way, you do not know which one of those you're going to fall into and do not know what are going to be the subsequent choices of 20,000 ramifications. So the answer is we will almost certainly be able to provide some degree of transparency for, for a large portion of the services that we provide and we should, but there is going to be always a part of the work that we do is going to be really difficult, close to impossible to price up front. Because it's going to be a function of what people Correct. need. This morning, we, earlier, we were, we were talking about value-based models and in particular models for providers that are going at full risk to provide uh, primary care uh, in clinic setting. And we have a number of companies here that are in businesses like that. Um, isn't that sort of the, the most extreme? Those patients, in fact, don't see a cost ever. They don't see, uh, in many cases, a copay, and their provider is at risk for, uh, for providing the full array of services. How, how does that fit into the equation? And obviously, that's uh, particularly unique uh, relative to, to a hospital-centric uh, uh, system like the Cleveland Clinic. We're not really hospital-centric, as people would like to believe. The largest number of our 4,000, 4,500 physicians are not hospital-based. They're outpatient-based. Actually, 60% of everything that we do is in the outpatient arena. We are the largest number of physicians or any institute is our institute that is in a primary care. And that is really a big shift that we have undertaken over the last five years. We have moved from 40 primary care physicians to uh, about 450. Uh, so that is the size of the shift with an emphasis. We, what we're really trying to do is uh, to provide a continuous care for our, for our patients. And that care, care continuum is something that we're very passionate about. Value-based care is uh, uh, kind of what we would like to believe at the Cleveland Clinic is something that we've been practicing for the past hundred years, even before the, the term was coined. As you know, at the Cleveland Clinic, we do not pay our providers based on the unit of care that they, they provide. We're all salaried. We're all on a one-year long appointment. We do not have 10 years. We're just trying to do what is right for our patients with the means that we have at our disposal for the benefits of our patients. We do not have our shareholders. So this, is, this has been, so to say, the ethos in the, in, in the organization that, is, uh, that has been present since 1921. Value-based care uh, is a concept that we endorse, the concept that we, that we support. Uh, the caveat here is we just have to make sure that we understand uh, who is actually getting the value out of value-based care. Uh, for the way we look at the world, we would like to make sure that that value is actually a value for our patients and from the standpoint of the quality and, and an experience of care that they, are, that they are receiving. Who gets the value? Who takes the risk? Uh, one of the pieces about the model, going back to what um, Tom said about you never know what it's going to cost because you don't know what somebody needs. If you guarantee someone access for a year at a certain price that they have been either provided or paid in the course of that year, if what you need exceeds um, that which has been paid on your behalf, I think one of the things we all have to understand, what are the implications of that, both for the person who has the care need, and then what are the risk pool models? You know, it's kind of like creating an insurance model behind the scenes to saying that, you know, we're going to receive a million dollars and have this number of patients. and. Somebody may need X and somebody may be Y, but it's going to average out to be a profitable model. But there's a lot of variables in there. So it feels like the, the people who are providing those models almost have to think like actuaries and insurance people to understand how they're going to make money because you cannot predict on any one individual uh, that that would be sufficient to cover what they might need in a given year. 
so we've talked about cost. Um, let's talk about uh, about access as we uh, as we're uh, heading deep into uh, a, a political uh, season. Uh, the phrase and the concept of uh, of Medicare for all is uh, has become uh, a profound topic. It was the uh, I think from minutes or words spoken at the last Democratic debate, it was the most uh, uh, the most discussed uh, subject. How do you think about that and and other related universal uh, coverage programs, access programs, uh, uh, in the context of where you're heading? With the Cleveland Clinic and where you see where you see other providers heading. Well, I spoke uh, briefly a, a few minutes ago about what we stand for, and really, that's an access access to Cleveland Clinic care. I mean, this is really the the, the motivation. That's what we're really passionate about. So uh, we're very much aware of of an access issue. I've had a good fortune to live and work in five different countries in five different healthcare systems. It is really important to understand the difference between having a a nominal or declarative access to care and an actually ability to, to, to access that care. I've lived in very many systems where Healthcare was free for all. You can always get it, but the lines were very, very long. And in practicality, people had difficulties accessing and accessing at the time of their need. So I think we have to be careful uh, when we speak about an access, what we mean by it. And every time I get into any type of these discussions, we would like to look at the world through patient size. If you have a right to access healthcare anytime, anywhere, but you cannot really access that right, that right is only declarative, it's not factual. So then therefore our task is to, de to design a system that is going to reconcile those two things. I do believe that people should have access to healthcare. I do believe that this is right, but we also do have a responsibility to design a system where the declarative right is gonna be translated in actual access to healthcare. I do believe that having a model that balances various aspects of healthcare delivery, whether it's a private government based and so on, is probably uh, the best one. Having looked at the financials of a few healthcare systems, um, you know, Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements don't really cover the cost. It is incumbent on healthcare systems to try and figure out how to I think an aspirational goal is to almost get it to break even to a slight right. profit. So if that became the entire revenue pool and you didn't have the mix of private pay in there, I think over time um, there is a different health care system because of what it will be able to fund and what it will be able to provide. And I'm not sure that um, there if we can't find an ecosystem where we still honor the private payer, the academic piece, um, we're, we're going to have better health care outcomes over time than I think if you uh, look at something where it's a fixed rate and it's provided by the government. I think that will have implications over time. The inability to finance it by the government and the inability perhaps to uh, to provide access. On the other hand, Beth, earlier you talked about as the CEO of Key and as a board member of, of other large companies, the amount of time and effort that is spent on putting together the benefits package and offering private insurance options and whatnot to, uh, to your constituents, to our employees. Um, in many ways, the you know this movement towards the a single payer would would uh, obviously relieve the burden uh, of employers. Is it realistic, or is it what you just said you would, might make it the, your life easier um, in the C-suite, but not feasible? Yeah, I um, I would tell you it's feasible. I mean, it would it would make it simpler. Um, on the other hand, I think as major employers, healthcare is a differentiator for us and how we approach um, attracting and retaining high quality talent um, and our ability to um, insert into our benefit programs um, pieces of wellness and services that our employees want and need that, like I said, make them more productive as well as their quality of life um, in terms of just the balance between health, office, family needs that we craft into our benefit plans takes a lot of time, but I also think it correlates with our ability to attract and retain yeah. um, high-quality workforce in an era where um, talent in most any industry is the differentiator. 
Let's talk about mergers and acquisitions. Is there a time that you can see in the next five years, if you look in your crystal ball, where there's a provider uh, in this country that has, say, a 10% market share? The answer is yes, and I, and I do believe that this is uh, uh, going to be inevitable. Uh, if we move to, uh, let's say, to a great extent to a single payer, that is actually going to accelerate that pace substantially. There are 8,500 hospitals in the United States, a large portion of them, if you take a look at their financials, it's not going to look sustainable. The needs of healthcare in the future that we address is going to be very technologically driven. We're going to require all of these hospitals to invest a phenomenal amount of money that they do not have into technological infrastructure. Needless to say, the regulations and the oversight for all the right reasons is, uh, is putting a strain to, to every provider. So the answer to your question is absolutely yes. I can see a future in healthcare where we're going to have a fewer large centers that are going to provide this kind of a complex healthcare, not unlikely to bank banking industry. There's always going to be a physical bank. There's always going to be a physical hospital. They're not going to disappear. However, it is going to be really difficult for me to envision that every small town in the United States is going to have two to three, two to 100, 250 bed hospital. They're going to have a much more asset light, integrated vehicles for the provision of coordinated care. That care is going to be coordinated with the use of a technology through larger centers that have that technological framework and also have a, a talent to back it up so that we can have finally the healthcare delivery system that is affordable, that is scalable, and that serves uh, both the needs of our patients and the needs of our, our society. So yes, the answer is absolutely. You each have, uh, have been consolidators uh, in the industry. How do you talk with your boards about the long-term M&A uh, uh, environment? and uh, whether it's something that is defensive, uh, how offensive is it, both in healthcare, but Beth, I think it is pertinent to talk about those other industries as well. I will uh, speak to banking, if I could, because I think your analogy that banks and healthcare highly distributed in numerous locations, many providers, many banks across the country, um, I think we're down to 5,000 banks in the United States. Uh, different banks, and you know, there was a time where it was 12,000 different banks in the United States when I started my career. So there has been a consolidation. It is very much a local sport. Um, so there is, people want their own hospital, they want their own bank, they do like this notion of trading locally. And to a consolidator, you look at it, and there is this cost of technology, the cost of investment, the efficiency that can be gained is part of the value equation. But resources are finite, and it's not just capital. It's time, it's focus, it's priorities that you set. We did a transaction several years ago of a whole bank acquisition. If I had, somebody asked me this just recently, had it to do over again, would absolutely do it. It was one of those things where, at the end of the day, we made a step change in our performance. We increased our market share. We extended our product set. It was really a good thing. But if I was going to be asked from a banking point of view, would I want to pick up a bunch of small banks, even if it would increase our market share? And, you know, at some point, when I look at our resources and our incremental ability to invest, that takes a lot of time and energy. And is the return there, or are you better investing in technological platforms, digital platforms? So I think when people start making these trade-offs, M&A is part of the environment uh, but to the consolidators, they have to look at it on a continuum of their alternatives for investment, both capital, time, and resources. And I'm, I think that is a complex equation in any industry and will be part of the complexity, I suspect, in, in healthcare over time. For us, the, our responsibility is to grow responsibly. The week doesn't go by that we do not have a call uh, inviting us to consider partnership merger with, uh, with a healthcare provider in the United States. Uh, this is where we're fortunate enough to be in that position, but we also do understand that there are real restrictions about our ability to grow at the, at the pace, as I said, that is responsible, and that we have to allocate our resources, both intellectual, time, money, people, 
to the to the type of a growth that is going to be uh, most most effective. I do believe the local hospitals, as I mentioned, is going to continue continue to exist. I do believe that there are going to be certain types of services that we will be able to scale up and extend to uh, to other hospitals, even without really owning them. Uh, and I'll just give you one one example of what that could look like. Let's say all intensive care unit beds in the Cleveland Clinic are being monitored from a single command center bunker. Uh, one of the big problems in the United States health game, particularly in the rural hospitals and the intensive care units are just difficult to staff. Uh, we do not have enough physicians. We cannot do it. Mental health, huge epidemics of mental health. We can simply not educate high enough psychiatrists to staff every intensive care unit or every emergency room throughout, throughout the country. It is just impossible. Using a telemedicine platform uh, that is going to be able to disseminate the expertise in, let's say, mental health care from a large renowned center that has that expertise and that, that human capital is, I think, the way to, ways to touch many providers in, a, in an effective manner without really acquiring them. So, yes, I think it's going to be a consolidation, yes, to be a prior question. Large centers will grow that will never eliminate the need for local providers, but I do believe that there are going to be certain services that those local providers will be able to acquire without really them being acquired by others. Tom, how, how do you respond in, uh, to the political discourse that uh, consolidation in the hospital industry, and particularly in, in given markets, you know, uh, reduces competition and therefore leads to, uh, in fact, price inflation, lack of uh, lack of a lack of a competitive environment. Given given you know your comment about there may be a provider that has a 10% market share somewhere down the road and the kinds of activities that you've just discussed. Well, the reason why I'm smiling is just contextual. It's really difficult difficult uh, thing to follow if the you know if the largest provider in the United States has a half a percent of market share and the largest payers have 20, 30 percent of market share. How come that the pairs can grow to be, you know, $200 billion cap? And that's good. And the providers are going to stay as tiny as they are and we're a threat. So I, I, don't, I don't follow the logic of that. There's something that I think is very, very important. And that is to say that it is absolutely true that the growth of a healthcare systems can not necessarily translate it historically into the improvements in the quality of care. For those, for those who they've covered, and because most of that growth was in the form of a holding company, people would agglomerate assets, but they wouldn't really integrate them. They wouldn't, you know, spread the quality of care and uh, any any optimal optimal pathways of care throughout the system. So they're not really functioning as an operating company. From our perspective, and there are many others in, in our industry who are taking the tact. We. We like to view uh, every presence of a Cleveland Clinic from the standpoint of one Cleveland Clinic, where we stand for the same experience of quality care in every location. So we work very, very hard to improve the quality and access to care in every location. And we have seen the improvements in those, uh, um, in, the, in those measures in every hospital that Cleveland Clinic has acquired over the last 10 years. Just got a couple of minutes left. How optimistic or pessimistic should we be, and are you, as a provider of healthcare, as a payer uh, of healthcare, as large employers, about where we're heading over the next five years in this healthcare economy? Beth? I don't think you should be a CEO if you're not optimistic. <laughs> uh, because I, I think in any scenario, you can paint the challenges and you can paint the opportunities. Uh, but I believe in the resilience of our industry, I believe in the resilience of our country, the quality and the depth of talent, and I believe uh, on the margin we will always translate into opportunities uh, that give reason and cause for optimism. Uh, this country has always risen to every challenge, so I'm very optimistic. Actually, I'll say uh, there's never been better time in healthcare than it is today. Uh, people think about, you know, oh, these are difficult times, and I say that compared to which year? <laughs> you know, people speak about good old times, and they say, so could you please specify a year or a period when the times were good in healthcare? And we've and never... Would you rather have melanoma now or melanoma 10? Exactly. 
Exactly right. I mean, we've never had better, better, uh, uh, Outcome. better outcomes, greater knowledge, higher quality of people. Probably the most important thing that we all have to understand that the quality of healthcare for the nation, the, the health of the nation is not solely determined by the quality of their hospitals. And I think in this entire conversation about healthcare reform, we're speaking about the reform of the payment. People do not realize that, yes, United States allocates relatively large proportions of the GDP to healthcare, but our allocation to other determinants of health that are much more powerful is actually relatively small. Social services, housing, affordable food, compared with other Western nations, it's relatively small. When you take a look at the allocations from these budgets for social determinants of health and healthcare and put them on top of each other, United States is in the middle of the pack of the Western countries. So, yes, France allocates less of their GDP for health care, but allocates substantially greater percentage of their GDP for their social services. And therefore, when you take or extrapolate, take a look at a public health care outcomes, the picture looks differently. You know, I'll just give you one, one example, and, and I think this is probably going to illustrate it better. Lead poisoning. So, Beth and I live in, live in Cleveland. Lead poisoning is a huge issue for our communities, for children in our communities. I mean, one hospitalization for a child with a lead wood poisoning costs more than affordable housing for that, that child and their families. So if you allocate that amount of money in an affordable housing, you would eliminate the need for repeated hospitalization, not to speak about the downstream consequences, mental impairment, learning disabilities, inabilities to find job. That's a healthcare reform that we should strive for. Well, I can't think of a better way to, uh, to end this discussion than your comment, uh, Tom. There's never been a better time to be in healthcare than now. So we thank you. Thanks to Beth Mooney, and to Tom Mahalovich. We appreciate your being here. Enjoy your day, everybody. So Have a great Kane Brothers is an investment bank focused exclusively on healthcare. The bankers at Kane stand apart because of their deep knowledge of the healthcare industry and their practical know-how when it comes to executing complex transactions in all healthcare sectors. These include healthcare services, medical technology, and life sciences. I'm your host, Dave Johnson. I'm a recovering investment banker who discovered late in my career I was always meant to be a journalist and maybe even a podcaster. I'm also the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of two books, the most recent of which is The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, Delivering Kinder, Smarter, Affordable Care for All. I love talking to other revolutionaries who are driving change in the healthcare industries. 